0: This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. Sponsored by Amazon, Audible, HostGator, Gamefly, and supporters of independent media like
1: you. Welcome to The Humanist Report. My name is Mike Figueredo and this is the 40th episode of the podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by our latest member on Patreon. Today we have Richard Barron and we also have a new VIP member on HumanistReport.com. That individual is Paula Gunn, so thank you so much to the both of you. Uh, If you would like to become a member or Patreon patron, you can visit the links in the description box down below. On today's episode, I will be discussing how Hillary Clinton made her pitch to Bernie Sanders supporters, and I will assess it and tell you whether or not it's going to be effective. And spoiler alert... No, she failed miserably. And next, I'll discuss a CNN segment where a Bernie Sanders supporter slayed a pro Clinton pundit and a pro Clinton Democratic strategist on CNN, and it was gold. Furthermore, I'll talk about something Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump both have in common. And once again, Bernie Sanders has reaffirmed his commitment to remain in the race until the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia. And I will talk about that as well as one of my viewers who has sent me a voice message explaining why she is still Sanders. Now, additionally, I'll discuss the Maryland Democratic race and how a progressive Berniecrat, Jamie Raskett, actually defeated... Chris Matthews' establishment wife, Kathleen Matthews, and it's glorious. The status of North Carolina's draconian anti-LGBT law will be discussed in this episode. And last but certainly not least, I will be talking to Dr. Jill Stein. She's a Green Party candidate for president, so I will be talking about all these topics. Stay tuned. I hope you guys enjoy the show. I missed MSNBC's Democratic Town Hall, but I wanted to talk about one particular moment where Rachel Maddow gave Hillary Clinton the opportunity to actually make a pitch to Bernie Sanders supporters. And Rachel Maddow had explained to Hillary Clinton that Bernie Sanders said his supporters will most likely not switch over and support her unless she plans to adopt some of his policy positions. And this was her botched response.
2: Well, Rachel, let's look where we are right now. I've got... 10.4 million votes. I have 2.7 million more votes, real people showing up to cast their vote to express their opinion than Senator Sanders. I have a bigger lead in pledged delegates than Senator Obama, when I ran against him in 2008, ever had over me. I am winning.
1: I am winning. (laughs) So let me get this straight. Your pitch to me is I'm winning. Looks like you don't have a choice. What kind of a response is that? So, I'm winning, Bernie doesn't have a path, uh, if you're a football team that's doing well and you get to the Super Bowl, you don't switch quarterbacks, right? Doesn't that sound like someone else?
2: Now I'm winning, it. it's over. It, it, as far as I'm concerned, it's over. These two guys cannot win, but there's no path. Have, so why would I change? You, you know, if you have change? a football team and you're winning, and then you get to the uh, Super Bowl, you don't change your quarterback, right? No. So but I'm not now, changing.
1: Oh, that's right, it sounds just like Donald Trump. So, Hillary Clinton... Her pitch to Bernie supporters is, I'm winning, you don't have a choice, too bad, support me, or get a Republican. Okay, that's a terrible pitch. But anyway, she continues, and she does exactly what you're not supposed to do if you're trying to court over another candidate's voters. She attacks the person who they support. Oh, and also, she's winning.
2: But my Wall Street plan is much more specific than his. We saw that when he couldn't even answer questions in the New York Daily News interview. I have laid out a very clear set of objectives about not just reigning in the banks, because we already have Dodd-Frank, which President Obama passed and signed. And I've said, I will implement it. But I've gone further. He has yet to join me in going after the shadow banking industry. And I think that's why I have 2.7 million more votes. If you're ahead in the vote, if you're ahead in pledged I delegates. Am is that? I am ahead in the I vote, way. No wait a minute. Uh, Look, I have the greatest respect for Senator Sanders, but really, what he and his supporters are now saying just doesn't add up. I have 2.7 million more votes than he has. I have more than 250 more pledged delegates. I'm very proud of the campaign that we have run and the support we have gotten. And of course, we're going to work together. I, as I said, I share a lot of the same goals. We are going to work together, but I am ahead. And let's start from that premise.
1: We will win and we will win and we will win. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I am thoroughly convinced after that. (laughs) This, uh, look, I don't know who's running her campaign, who is priming her to say this, what's going on in her head, but this is not what you want to say to convinced disenfranchised Sanders supporters to switch over to you if you do become the nominee. Can you imagine if it really does turn out to be Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump in November? This would be the most narcissistic campaigns we've ever seen, and it's going to be so disgusting to watch, and there's a reason why so many people would be willing to sit out this election because of it. So I want to make two points about Hillary Clinton's pitch here. So first and foremost, she is not doing her homework when it comes to courting over Bernie Sanders supporters. And second of all, she is severely underestimating the reality of the Bernie or Bust movement, and she's thinking that Bernie Sanders supporters are going to be like her supporters in 2008. That's not the case at all. In fact, it's the complete opposite. If she really wanted to court over Bernie Sanders supporters, she would say, you know what, Rachel? You're 100% right. What I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, endorse Bernie Sanders' platform of breaking up the big banks, of reinstating Glass Steagall. But all she says is, look, my plan is stronger than his. Okay, well, if we believed that, we would have supported you in the first place. So why would we be convinced now? Just because we have no one else? No, we're just going to support Jill Stein or write in Bernie Sanders. That's not a very palatable argument for you to use. It's just insane. And furthermore, The problem is that we know that you have the weaker plan when it comes to Wall Street reform. One, because you take money from them, so we can't trust you. And second of all, your platform doesn't include breaking up the big banks. Your platform doesn't include reinstating Glass-Steagall, and you constantly tout Dodd-Frank as though it's sufficient legislation, but it's not. It did not rain in wall street the problem with dodd frank is that gradually it's been watered down over the years and it wasn't even that strong to begin with because barney frank is one of the co-authors he was the head of the financial services committee and he was taking money from wall street so in other words he was being bribed by the firms who he was supposed to be regulating so of course it's not sufficient so you can't just claim that your plan is better on wall street we don't believe you if we thought your plan was better we'd probably support you to begin with, but we don't believe that's the case, so that's a horrible argument. Now, as for my second point, Hillary Clinton, as well as Debbie Wasserman Schultz, Barack Obama, all of these Democratic establishment people are severely underestimating the reality that is burning your bust. Now, I get why they're doing this, because in 2008, about 45% of Hillary Clinton's supporters, uh, they were considered as Puma, party unity my ass, and basically, they were saying that if Hillary Clinton does not win the Democratic nomination. They will not support Barack Obama in November. 45% of them said this, but in the end, Hillary Clinton endorsed Barack Obama and they ended up supporting him. Now, when it comes to the Bernie or Bust movement, only about 25 to 33% of them state that they will not support Hillary Clinton if she is the nominee. Now, that's a smaller portion, but that still could be detrimental if 25 to 33% actually don't support Hillary Clinton. Now, again, it seems logical to think that these individuals will switch and unite behind Hillary, but... If you think that way, you're not diving into the details. It's really important to do that. So first and foremost, one reason why this is not the case is because Bernie Sanders draws in independents who wouldn't have supported the Democratic candidate otherwise. There are many independent candidates that will just vote for Green or that will vote for the Constitutional Party or some other Libertarian Party. They're not going to support the Democratic candidate no matter what. So all these new voters that Bernie Sanders would have drawn in will be lost if Hillary Clinton is the nominee. Second of all... Barack Obama had the young vote. Hillary Clinton does not have the young vote. Young voters are not going to come out and vote unless they are excited. If they're not excited by your corporatist candidates, they're just going to stay home and not vote. So what makes you think that they're going to go out of their way to wait in line for five hours in sub-states due to voter suppression tactics when they're not even excited about you? They're just going to stay home. So if you already had the young vote, I would say, you know what, you might be right. But the fact that Hillary Clinton cannot win the young vote and only older, more wealthier voters support her, it's devastating. Now, finally, and most importantly, the biggest error in their reasoning is that Bernie Sanders supporters are much, much different than Hillary Clinton supporters. See, the thing about Hillary Clinton supporters is that they're socially liberal. They have a superficial understanding of policy, and what they know about the nuance when it comes to economic policy and foreign policy is probably limited to be honest so what they do is they kind of endow trust in the democratic party to re- represent them because they look at the republican option and they think look i don't want to vote for them and i'm at least socially liberal i'm in favor of abortion and gay rights so i guess i'm going to support them so they tend to just trust the De- democratic party they tend to trust these democratic superstars like hillary clinton and Barack obama and H- harry reid and nancy pelosi without actually looking at their policy positions So they prioritize the candidate above the policy. But when it comes to Bernie Sanders, we prioritize the policy above the candidate. So in other words, if Bernie Sanders were to flip and all of a sudden start backtracking and saying, you know what, maybe we should wait to break up the big banks, maybe we shouldn't reinstate Glass-Steagall, we would all abandon him. This isn't a cult of personality with Bernie Sanders. We support him because of his policy positions. We don't support Hillary Clinton because of her policy positions. And this has been something that's been so difficult for people in the establishment to comprehend. Now, I'm not just making this up. I have a bunch of examples for you as to why Hillary Clinton supporters support the candidate above the policy. So case in point, in 2012, everyone was railing against Mitt Romney for giving speeches to these large financial institutions, for having super PACs, for taking lots of money from special interests. And that was one of the main complaints by Democratic voters who are now supporting Hillary Clinton. But now all of a sudden, Hillary Clinton is taking money from uh, to give speeches to Goldman Sachs. She has seven super PACs. She is taking so much money from every special interest you can imagine. But now Democrats are sort of walking back their stance on that. Maybe Citizens United isn't so bad. Maybe money in politics is just the way the system works and you got to play the game to win. So wasn't Mitt Romney just playing the game to win? Why are you reversing your position on this? Again, this is a reason why they support the candidate above the policy. Furthermore, another example, Syrian no-fly zone. This is basically a Republican position that Hillary Clinton wants. She's saying that Russia is not allowed to go in Syria and fight ISIS. She's saying there's this whole zone above Syria that you're not allowed to fly over. And if you do, if you violate that Syrian no-fly zone, we're going to shoot down your plane. That's basically escalating tensions with russia democratic voters are doves not hawks right so all of a sudden they're defending this insane policy that could potentially reignite the cold war that every single republican supports see it's just another reason why it's the candidate that they care about not the policy positions because bernie sanders supporters they have a nuanced view of economic policy of foreign policy of domestic policies that screw us over. So universal healthcare, we know that Hillary Clinton doesn't support universal healthcare anymore because her palms were greased by the health insurance industry. They started paying her millions of dollars to give these paid speeches. They started paying her large sums of money for her campaign contributions. And lo and behold, all of a sudden, she doesn't like universal healthcare anymore. So we get it. We understand what's going on. We know how money and politics corrupts the system. But Hillary Clinton supporters don't see it that way. They believe the Democratic Party is truly looking out for their best interests. So that's why when Hillary Clinton endorsed Barack Obama in 2008, like sheep, they followed Hillary Clinton because her supporters are like sheep. They will follow her and defend her no matter what she does, whereas that's not the case with us and Bernie Sanders. If he starts messing up and backtracking on his policy positions, not going to defend him. I've been calling out Bernie Sanders from the beginning to take a strong position on marijuana, and finally he came around to it. I disagree with Bernie Sanders on some issues, but I am not going to defend Bernie Sanders unless he maintains his progressive policy platform. Now, finally, Hillary Clinton talks about how, you know, I dropped out, I endorsed Barack Obama immediately, and I united the party, as if this is some noble thing she did, when in actuality, she wasn't looking out for the party, she was looking out for numero uno, because what she did is she probably did a secret deal with Barack Obama saying, look, if you make me Secretary of State or VP or something... I'll endorse you. So, of course, Barack Obama was obliged to uh, listen to her and take her up on her offer or whoever made the offer. But we know that she did it because of her own self-interest because she was getting a position in his administration so that way she could boost her own resume when she does inevitably run for president in 2016, as she's doing now. So she can't pretend as though this is some noble thing that she did because it's not. Bernie Sanders is the noble one because he's saying, look, I will not support Hillary Clinton or endorse her unless she's actually going to fight for a $15 minimum wage unless she's going to endorse universal health care. I'm sorry, but she's got to look out for the voters. Bernie Sanders doesn't care about looking out for himself. And that's the thing that they hate about Bernie Sanders and can't understand. So in the end, Hillary Clinton, she really botched her chance to get Bernie Sanders supporters to switch to her. And if this is any indication of what she's going to do to court us over, man, she's going to have a rough time come November. Yane Indigo is a Bernie Sanders supporter who is burning her bust, and she was on CNN talking to a pro-Hillary pundit and a pro-Hillary Democratic strategist and discussing why she was burning her bust. And throughout the whole segment, both the pundit and the strategist were being incredibly smug and condescending to her because of her burning her bust position. Now, what she did in return was just calmly and articulately slay them both with the facts. So take a look and then we'll come back and discuss this.
0: So so Yane, I I Uh wanna start with you. Um, It's virtually impossible for Senator Sanders to win the nomination. So why is it Bernie or bust for you? Um,
3: You know, a lot of people, they perceive the Bernie or bust movement as being something that's almost like a temper tantrum um, for people who support Bernie. And I think it's really important for people to understand that burn your bust is really a representation of how, um, how we feel about Hillary Clinton. We don't like Hillary Clinton um, and uh, we can't support her.
0: So Yanni, under no circumstances would you vote for Hillary Clinton? I'm definitely not gonna vote for her. So, so Emily, you're a Democratic strategist, you're a Clinton supporter, so, so convince Yanni she's wrong.
4: Yeah, well, I'm sorry to hear that, and I do think there are a lot of people that are open to supporting Hillary. And really, the the difference between the candidates has always really been in in uh, in degree and not in kind. Look there's no question that Sanders brought forward a lot of issues that really tapped into what a lot of people are feeling in this country right now and want to be talking about income inequality, affordable college, he talked about free college, she talks about affordable college, money and politics, but the reality is that these are issues that she actually had in her platform, have always been a part of her platform, and she talks about increasingly more. He did put a real spotlight on them, he talks about them in very simplistic terms, and so I think it has forced her and her campaign to talk about them much more broadly and put them more front and center. But look, so, this campaign is going to this general so, so, election no, 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 is going to be about. Because Emily,
0: Emily, I want to mm-hmm. see if any of that makes sense to Yanni. So when you hear Emily say those things, what do you think, Yanni?
3: Well, there are a few things I think. I think first of all that Hillary Clinton says things that aren't always what she means and aren't what she believes in, and she's demonstrated that. And one of the one of the One of the clearest ways that she's demonstrated that was in 2008 when she was running against um, then Senator Obama um, for president and she claimed that she was going to, uh, that she was against the Colombian Free Trade Agreement. And, um, and that she was going to be basically lobbying against that. And that's what she said publicly during her campaigning. But when her emails came out, we saw that what she was actually doing um, behind the scenes, out of the public eye, was actually lobbying for that exact agreement. So that's evidence for us that what Hillary Clinton says in order to win the election doesn't really have anything to do with what it is that she's going to actually do if she becomes the president. And so mm-hmm. I, whatever she's talking
0: about in a platform, i just don't trust her and um and well, so while i i, I do you agree hit, that yane, there are think, a lot of things i think you've hit the nail on the head you just don't trust her and emily and uh, mrs clinton does have a trust issue so what can you say to voters like yane to say yes you can now trust hillary clinton um she means what she says
4: yeah that is clearly her highest vulnerability that is something that we do see um, that we do see pervasive, and this has been a theme of media attacks on her for the last 20 years. Look, we forget the fact that most politicians come into the, ma- to the main stage at the same time to America. Maybe their state knows them, maybe their district knows them, but people generally get to know them all at the same time. That is not the case with Clinton, and there have always been these attacks on her for whatever reason, but I think that as we get more into her, you know, her history, her commitment that we see that she actually always has been committed to fighting for people that don't have a voice well, it's actually it has always her history, been there in the public service
0: actually, yane, yane
4: go it's ahead. her
3: history that that actually um, it's not simply, it's not just the the Colombian free trade agreement It's the it's what the State Department did under her leadership going into Haiti And when they wanted to to raise the minimum wage for the Haitians from 24 cents an hour to 61 cents an hour They negotiated down to 31 cents an hour It's what is the regime change in Honduras and all of the people who are dying as a result of Clinton's in, influence in Honduras after they had their first democratic election. It's the mistake of the Iraq war. It's the mistake of Libya. It's her history. History that causes us questions and so now she's saying new things and she's saying new things that are popular suddenly she realizes that the, the importance of black lives matter because of the black lives matter movement and these things don't seem genuine they seem like what she needs to say in order to get elected we don't trust what she says and we don't like what she's done and so for okay. those combined reasons we won't
0: vote for Hillary Clinton okay last word Emily
4: Look, I think that people read into what, they believe what they want to believe, right? Like you can discount pieces of past if you don't think they fit with a current narrative. I think there is a lot to be said for somebody who can learn from their past mistakes and say, look, we tried it, it didn't work, we're moving forward with something that does work. That is what we want in a leader, that is what we want with the President of the United States. And I don't think that we're seeing that, honestly, across the board in any other of the candidates.
0: All right, I have to leave it there. What I want in a leader is a person who has foresight.
3: I want a leader who has foresight, who has the ability to know in 1994 that there are issues with the crime bill, not to look back after thousands of lives have been destroyed and families have been destroyed and say, "Ooh, I made a mistake. I want somebody who has foresight to (laughs) to say, no, I'm not going to vote for the Iraq war because that's wrong. Not somebody who's going to later on say, oops, that was a mistake. I don't, I don't think our country can afford the mistakes that come with hindsight. We want somebody who has the foresight to make the right decisions in the beginning. Okay, I have
1: to leave it there. Now I'm conflicted because even though I loved the segment because she completely destroyed them, I actually felt really frustrated because they were so smug and condescending to her. Uh, Emily, can you please bless this dumb peasant and inform her as to why she's completely wrong? Please, enlighten her with your overwhelming intelligence about Hillary Clinton. Mm. Uh, just completely smug and condescending. And then it got even worse. So, uh, basically she interrupted Emily and was like, no, so, slow down, okay? Because I don't want this peasant here to get too confused, right? We have to speak slowly because these dumb peasants who support burning or bust... They can't understand the details and the facts, so you really gotta slow down and get down on their level when you're speaking to them. But their asses were burned when she hit them with the hard facts after that. So she began... Uh, Retorting against their bullshit by stating reasons why she doesn't support Hillary Clinton based on facts, very specific facts. The look on their face when she talked about how Hillary Clinton fought against a Haitian minimum wage when they were negotiating from 24 cents an hour to 61 cents an hour and how Hillary Clinton negotiated them down to 31 cents an hour made them realize that they were the ones getting enlightened. And the consultant said, People believe what they want to believe. Right, that's what you're doing when you support Hillary Clinton. You think you're supporting a Democrat, when in actuality, you're supporting a Republican. She is a Democrat in name only. Now, my favorite part is where the Democratic strategist said, look, there's something to be said about a candidate that can learn from her mistakes. I know Hillary Clinton made all these mistakes. She has, throughout her career, been consistently on the wrong side of history, even though she claims to be a Democrat. But look, she's learned from her mistakes. Has she, though? See, after voting to illegally invade Iraq, she realized maybe it was a mistake to overthrow uh, leaders in other countries. But then, apparently, she didn't learn from that mistake because then she pushed Obama to overthrow Gaddafi in Libya, and now Obama calls that one of the biggest mistakes of his administration. So, did she learn from that? Did she learn from the Honduras coup that she backed to overthrow their democratically elected leader? No. So, even though she's made mistakes over and over and over again. Now, she wants to overthrow Assad in Syria. Do you really think that Hillary Clinton has learned from her mistakes? Do you really think that taking on Republican foreign policy positions, such as implementing a Syrian no-fly zone to escalate tensions with Russia, is learning from your mistakes? I don't think that's learning from my mistakes, but maybe that's just me. Maybe, you know, I'm living in my own deluded reality where up is down... (laughs) <laughs> left is right, and yes means no, and no means yes, I don't know, but it looks as though Hillary Clinton has never learned from any of her mistakes. Case in point, she has consistently been slow to adopt the platform of her collective peers and party members. She was against legalizing gay marriage. She was one of the last people to come around to it. The Democratic Party came around in 2012. She came around in 2013. Uh, furthermore, when it comes to marijuana, the party wants to legalize marijuana. All the voters do, a majority, and Hillary Clinton is against that. Universal health care, a majority of Democratic voters are in favor of that. Hillary's against it now. So I don't think Hillary Clinton has learned from her mistakes. Now look, at the end of the day, am I in support of a candidate who uh, can learn from their mistakes? Well, look, I'd rather have a candidate who has foresight rather than hindsight, as uh, Yane made the point. But, I mean, I could respect someone who makes a mistake and learns from it. We're all human. But Hillary Clinton doesn't even have hindsight, let alone foresight. So no, I don't think she's learned from her mistakes, and I don't think there's any valid reason to support her. So as the these two individuals, the pro-Clinton pundit, who, again, CNN, their owner is Time Warner, who is one of Hillary Clinton's largest donors, so she's just a, pu- a puppet for them. Uh, so she's sitting here being all smug and condescending. This Democratic strategist is trying to talk down to this person, but they have no response when you hit them with the facts. And most Bernie Sanders supporters, they can list off a bunch of reasons why Hillary Clinton is not the candidate who they want to support and why they're Bernie or bust. Now, the tone in the media towards people who are Bernie or bust, it's honestly infuriating to me because people who are Bernie or bust, they're not stupid. As Yane stated, it's not like these individuals are trying to throw a tantrum. They just can't support Hillary Clinton for moral and ethical reasons. For me, I'm living in a blue state, a deep blue state, so I'm not worried about my vote throwing off the entire election, so I feel really bad for Bernie Sanders supporters in swing states who may feel compelled to vote for Hillary Clinton. For me, I'm not going to be complicit in any more wars, okay? When I voted for Barack Obama and then he immediately ramped up drone strikes in Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, I felt as though... I Not only one was complicit because, you know, my tax dollars funded those bombs to kill civilians, but I basically gave him permission by voting for him. And I'm not going to do that for Hillary Clinton. I'm not going to give her permission to commit atrocities abroad to help out defense contractors. I can't support a candidate who is taking the Democratic Party in the wrong direction. So this is a personal decision. These people aren't irrational. They're not trying to get Donald Trump in office. We don't support Republicans. That's why we won't vote for Hillary Clinton because she's very close with them on basically every issue with the exception of social issues like LGBT rights now, thankfully, and abortion. So for me, I just have no reason to vote for Hillary Clinton. I'm not gonna vote against my own interests. I'm not gonna send the message to the party to keep abusing me, to keep representing special interests as I cast my vote for them. No thank you. So people who are burning or bust are not stupid. So the media really needs to stop acting like it because this is a rational decision and it's one that's personal that each individual has to make. So shame on them for talking down to a Bernie Sanders supporter who's Bernie or bus, but we know why they're doing it. Again, the CNN pundit is a puppet. Anyone on CNN is representing the interests of their parent company, Time Warner. So if you think that they're just speaking freely off the cuff, like ICANN, or like independent media outlets can, think again. These people are puppets doing what they're supposed to do. Pop quiz. What do you guys think Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton both have in common? They have an address in common, which proves that they are willing to use their power and influence to take advantage of the American people. That address is 1209 North Orange Street in Wilmington, Delaware. This is known as the Corporate Trust Center. Now you're probably wondering, okay, they have an address in common. Do they live together? What's going on? Well, it's a bit more complicated than that. So The Guardian explains, officially, 1209 North Orange is home to Apple, American Airlines, Coca-Cola, Walmart, and dozens of other companies in the Fortune 500 list of America's biggest companies. Being registered in Delaware lets companies take advantage of strict corporate secrecy rules, business-friendly courts, and the Delaware loophole, which can allow companies to legally shift earnings from other states to Delaware, where they are not taxed on non-physical incomes generated outside of the state. The loophole is said to have cost other states more than $9 billion in lost taxes over the past decade and led to Delaware to be described as one of the world's biggest havens for tax avoidance and evasion. Okay, so I want to stop for a second here and note the significance of this. This is where all the largest multinational corporations go to avoid paying their taxes. It's a tax haven. And so, what is it that Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump have in common with this address? I mean, I know Donald Trump's a businessman, but what does Hillary Clinton have? Well... It turns out both the leading candidates for president, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, have companies registered at 1209 North Orange and have refused to explain why. Just eight days after stepping down as Secretary of State in February 2013, Clinton registered ZFS Holdings LLC at CTC's offices. Bill Clinton set up WJC LLC, a vehicle to collect his consultation fees, at the same address in 2008. The Clintons' companies share the office with several of Trump's companies. Of the 515 companies on Trump's official Federal Election Commission filing, 378 are registered in Delaware. So I want to repeat that. As soon as Hillary Clinton was done being Secretary of State, one of the first things she did was set up a fake company and register it to this address so that way any of the income she made when she did her big tour giving speaking fees to special interests like the health insurance industry and Wall Street, Goldman Sachs, well, she set up this fake company so she can avoid paying taxes on this income? Really? Now, I'm not surprised from Donald Trump. I mean, it's a little bit embarrassing that of his 500 companies, the vast majority of them are all... Set up to this address to avoid paying taxes. That's not really surprising for Donald Trump, but I want to read to you a quote from Hillary Clinton. Now, she referred to this type of thing as outrageous, and she also called tax havens a form of perversion. So, what happened? Why the change of heart? See, Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton combined are multi millionaires, they have hundreds of millions of dollars, yet It wasn't enough for them. They thought, you know what? I don't want to pay my fair share of taxes. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to set up a fake shill company so that way I can register it at this address and take all the money I make from my speeches there and not pay taxes on it like everyone else does. How unfair is that? How is Hillary Clinton going to take on the corrupt system when she's part of it? She's part of the problem. She claims Donald Trump is part of the problem. You're part of the problem too, Hillary. Hillary. Now, look, I'm not just trying to be overly hard on Hillary Clinton. Donald Trump is guilty just like her. But I'm not surprised that that Donald Trump is avoiding taxes. All these uh, free trade agreements that he rails against, he's taken advantage of. Where do you think his ties are manufactured? Not in the United States, in China. Now, his supporters will say, well, look, though, you know, he, he manufactures it there just because, you know, it's a business decision. You know, he can't compete in the United States. So he has to ship them overseas and manufacture them there. Right, okay, so he's not just corrupt. Continue to justify the corruption of Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, though. The two leading candidates in both of their parties. Please, continue to justify their corruption. I'm honestly entertained by this. I'll grab the popcorn now. So it's no wonder why 25% of Americans say that they'll either boycott the election or vote third party if it comes down to Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. We have a choice between one crooked politician and another crooked politician. All the things that they rail against they do. So how can you say one thing and do another? This is the definition of corruption right here. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are part of the problem, so the fact that they try to offer solutions as though they care that they give a damn about normal people like us, us peasants and plebeians, I find it offensive that they would actually insult our intelligence this much, but again, they both have so much sheepish followers who will follow them no matter what. It's like a cult of personality for Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. You have two people, two competing sides who hate each other, and their followers are just unequivocally in support of their candidate. No matter what they do, no matter how much they mess up, it doesn't matter. They can't lose the support. Donald Trump has said the most insidious things we've ever seen from a presidential candidate, and their supporters will find every single way to justify it. Hillary Clinton is doing things that Republicans aren't even in favor of, for example, the Syrian no-fly zone. But yet, her supporters will justify that. They'll justify her vote for the Iraq war. They'll justify the fact that she was the last person to come around to gay marriage. They'll justify the fact that she won't get on board with universal healthcare, with legalizing marijuana, all just to support their corporatist candidates. Well, this is why people are angry and think the system doesn't work. So if it came down to Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump, this would be the worst matchup for a general election in modern history. It'd be terrible. I mean, what kind of choices are these? So you already know, if you're a Bernie Sanders supporter, this has been a really tough couple of weeks for us after the loss in New York and then the losses on uh, Tuesday in uh, Pennsylvania and whatnot. It's been tough. And as of late, there's been some chatter about Bernie Sanders potentially dropping out uh, because he, quote, is allegedly reevaluating his position after his losses on Tuesday, which that's not true. Uh, and furthermore, he's made big cuts to his campaign, hundreds of staffers. And even though it is the case uh, that many do- campaigns do start to cut staffers in certain states after uh, the primary season is wrapped up and whatnot. Uh, It's not a good sign. So it's really frustrating, and many people were worried that Bernie Sanders would be dropping out before the convention, but thankfully, he has reaffirmed his commitment to remain in the race until Philadelphia. So uh, he states, The people in every state in this country should have the right to determine who they want as president and what the agenda of the Democratic Party should be. That's why we are in this race until the last vote is cast. That is why this campaign is going to the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia with as many delegates as possible to fight for a progressive party platform that calls for a $15 an hour minimum wage, an end to our disastrous trade policies, a Medicare for all healthcare system, breaking up Wall Street financial institutions, ending fracking in our country, making public colleges and universities tuition-free, and passing a carbon tax so we can effectively address the planetary crisis of climate change. And furthermore, just to add to that, uh, his supporters aren't going anywhere either and you can expect to deal with us even after the convention because we are not going anywhere i'm still sanders through and through uh and i'm not going to quit and the thing that's frustrating is that hillary clinton supporters they just assume that we're going to unite behind hillary clinton now because it's most likely the case that bernie sanders will not make up enough delegates to win outright but that's not the case it doesn't matter like for one i'm frustrated because i vote in oregon we're one of the last states to go and i haven't even casted my vote yet and yet apparently the decision is made up for me No, thank you. I'm still going to go and cast my vote for Bernie Sanders, uh, and enthusiastically so. To me, I look at Bernie Sanders as a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. The one chance we get to elect a non-corporatist, centrist, Democratic candidate for president. All these other Democrats, they'll take money from financial institutions, they'll take money from the health insurance industry, and pretend to be progressive, but when they get in office, they betray us immediately immediately. And I'm done with that. I'm not going to support a party who is not going to support me and look out for my interests. So for me, that's why as soon as I cast my vote for Bernie Sanders, I will be switching to an independent voter. Just for symbolic purposes, I want to send a message to the party that you lost me. You had your chance with Bernie Sanders, but you ruined it. We could have had someone who would have united the party and made Democrats infinitely popular. With FDR, he won by a landslide. He's the only president in American history to serve more than two terms because he was really popular. He was a social Democrat. He actually got things done for the people. He didn't care about special interests. He rejected them. He said, I welcome their hate. Bernie Sanders says the same thing. He says, I welcome their contempt to disgruntled CEOs, and I'm not going to support any more corporatist Democrats. I'm sorry. You guys had your chance to win me over with Bernie Sanders. You screwed that up. You bungled that. So that was your one opportunity to win over millennials and people who are disenchanted with the political process. But... You guys failed miserably, so I'm still Sanders. If you think I'm going to stop, if you think I'm going to stop talking about Bernie Sanders, even if he's out of this election, I'm still going to continue to fight for universal health care for a $15 minimum wage. I refuse to acquiesce. I'm not voting for Hillary Clinton. I will not unite behind her. And I feel bad for the Democratic voters in swing states who have to reluctantly cast their vote for Hillary Clinton because they don't want Trump to win. But for me, I'm in a deep blue state. You guys are not going to get my vote anymore so yes it is the case that bernie sanders is staying in it until philadelphia and so are we we're not going anywhere here's the thing i'm not in support of candidates i am in support of the ideas that candidates hold so if hillary clinton is going to run as basically a republican why would i support her why would i support a republican or republican light she's to the right of trump on some issues i'm not joking foreign policy wise he didn't want to invade iraq she did Now, I don't know if I necessarily believe anything Trump says, but, I mean, just when it comes to their rhetoric, if you judge it by that alone, by that metric, he's to the left of Hillary Clinton. So, I'm sorry, but the Democratic Party had their chance to win over millennials and progressives and independents, but they blew it. They blew it by rigging the system, by limiting debates, by corroborating with the Hillary Clinton campaign at the beginning to limit debates, by trying to... uh, attack these progressive candidates by disabling their access to Van. They did it to Bernie Sanders. They did it to Alex Law. They did it to Tim Canova. So that way, they could basically uh, disembowel their entire campaign. It's not fair. It's not right. When Hillary Clinton first announced her campaign, I was going to reluctantly support her, and I was thinking... Whatever. I mean, you know, I'm not going to be happy about it, but I can't imagine that they're going to put up a Republican who's any more reasonable than her, so I might as well vote for her. But then Bernie Sanders came along, and Hillary Clinton really showed her true colors. She attacked core Democratic values, which I hold dear. Universal health care, that's non-negotiable. If you don't support that, I don't support you. And now she's wavering on money in politics. All of a sudden, it's acceptable for a Democratic candidate to say, I want to get unaccountable money out of politics? Well, yeah, I do too. I'd love more transparency. But you know what I want to do? I want to get money out of politics altogether. Hillary Clinton isn't even in support of that. She's not even saying she's going to nominate a liberal Supreme Court justice. She would not ask Obama to withdraw his appointment of uh, Merrick Garland. I have zero reasons to vote for Hillary Clinton. So I am still Sanders through and through. I will continue to fight for him until he's out of the race. And after that, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be just as loud and obnoxious as I've always been. So Hillary supporters are going to have to get used to vocal Bernie Sanders supporters who are fighting for the right causes, who are on the right side of history. And I suggest you join us, because if you don't put pressure on the Democratic Party, guess who they're going to represent? Their donors. They don't care about you. They care about their special interest donors who get them in the office. It's rational. It's what they do. It's time for Hillary Clinton supporters to unite behind progressives, to unite behind the ideals that we've been fighting for for decades as Democrats, universal health care, Getting money out of politics. That's what true Democrats do. And because the party isn't doing that anymore, I'm going to switch to an independent. Now, I'll still push them. I'll still push the party and caucus with the party when it comes to congressional races. But guess what? You lost me. You blew your chance. Sorry. A couple of episodes ago, I told you guys about Kathleen Matthews. She was running for the House of Representatives in Maryland, and she's also the wife of pro-establishment host on MSNBC, Chris Matthews, who you would otherwise know as the loud pundit who always does propaganda for the Democratic Party. Now, as she was doing her campaign, many of the guests on Chris Matthews' program, well, they would donate to her campaign either before or right after appearing on his episode. Now, this is clearly a conflict of interest that he did not disclose, and MSNBC did absolutely nothing about it. So now, I have some good news. The good news is that Kathleen Matthews has officially lost. Now, the reason why we didn't want Kathleen Matthews to get in is because she was establishment through and through. So not only is she married to a pro-establishment pundit, so she could just go on his show or have him do propaganda for her at any time, and we don't want that. Uh, And second of all, she had almost all the same donors as Hillary Clinton, and she's very close with the Clintons. She worked for the Clinton Foundation. So this is an individual who is establishment through and through. She took money from special interests, and she would just get in and be beholden to all the same people who she took money from. And I'm sorry, but we don't need any more centrist, pro-corporatist Democrats. So this is a win for progressives. Now, the reason why we're super excited is because she lost to Jamie Raskin. Jamie Raskin won with a plurality of the vote, 34 percent and uh, David Trone is a pro-corporate businessman. He came in second. He'd be just as establishment, if not more, as Kathleen, and she got her ass handed to her. She came in third with 24% of the vote. Now, this is a win for the progressive revolution because Jamie Raskin is actually a Bernie I haven't mentioned him on my show before. There's a lot of Bernie out there, but this is a progressive individual who ran a grassroots campaign with the platform of trying to get money out of politics, and also his campaign... Or his election would actually be historic because he's openly atheist. He would be the only member of Congress that's actually a humanist atheist. So the Huffington Post writes Raskin does not hide his humanist beliefs, a philosophy that eschews supernatural faith and holds that it's possible to lead an ethical life without fearing God. He is a member of the nonprofit American Humanist Association, which lobbies Congress on the separation of church and state, and was supported by the group's Free Thought Equality Fund Political Action Committee. He also teaches constitutional law. Raskin will be the only open non-theist serving in the U.S. Congress, the first ever to win an open seat, and just the second humanist to serve in Congress. So now, if you actually do want to support his campaign, he'll be going up against the Republican in November. Uh, You can go to jamieraskin.com if you're listening on iTunes, and for all of my YouTube watchers, uh, there'll be a link in the description box. Now, the thing about this is that this is huge for atheists, because we don't get representation in Congress. So if you look at the two most hated groups in the country and who have the biggest problems getting elected, it's atheists and Muslims. They're still demonized. They're still vilified. So this is a huge win if he does actually get elected and beats the Republican. But if you run on the ideals, you'll see that Americans don't care about these descriptive characteristics. It doesn't matter if you're atheist or Muslim or gay or straight. What matters is your policy ideals to many voters, and if you run a populist campaign, you can win if you have the grassroots support behind you, and he's proven that. He beat out two corporatist candidates who together raised 12 million dollars, and even though they both outraised him, he still managed to win, so this is great. So that's the good news, but I've got some bad news about the Tuesday Net Election, aside from the fact that Hillary Clinton won four of the five states, obviously. John Fetterman, who was a Bernie Krat running for the Senate in Pennsylvania, unfortunately lost. And, you know, many said that his campaign was a long shot to begin with. But here's the thing. You win some and you lose some. I don't think this is going to be the end of John Fetterman because he managed to cultivate a really huge following online. Many podcasts, such as myself uh, and the Benjamin Dixon Show and whatnot, have all been covering John Fetterman. And even uh, he appeared on The Young Turks. So he is being elevated. He's getting more notoriety. And hopefully this will boost his campaign in the future if he does decide to run. And if you're watching, John, man... Please don't give up. Continue to run because we need progressive Democrats like you. Uh, so, in the end, it's disappointing to see a Bernie Krat fail, but at the same time, we got to celebrate the victory. So, uh, throughout this election, I'm going to do my best to highlight as many Bernie Kratz as possible. It's difficult because there are many. So if you visit the link in the description box, I believe it's sandersdemocrats.org for people who are listening on iTunes, uh, it'll tell you who is a Berniecrat in your state. So check that out. It's a valuable resource. We got to support these people. We got to get a brand new Congress, and we do it by electing progressive Democrats. <laughs> As you all know, North Carolina recently passed a sweeping anti-gay law that would prevent transgender people from using the bathroom of the gender they identify as, and furthermore, it actually prohibited local municipalities from putting in anti-discrimination legislation for LGBT people. After a momentous amount of backlash from businesses, from the media, and from celebrities even, this was the collective response of North Carolina lawmakers
3: have made a huge mistake.
1: So Huffington Post explains, More than 180 businesses have condemned it as discriminatory and called for a repeal. Bruce Springsteen canceled a concert in protest. Former basketball player Charles Barkley called for moving the 2017 NBA All-Star Game out of Charlotte, while PayPal decided against expanding operations to the city. On Friday, President Barack Obama called the new law wrong and said it should be overturned. So now the result is that they have gone into full damage control mode. So they have introduced HB 946, which is a bill that would overturn the law they just codified a couple of weeks ago. Uh, But the bad news is that even though this bill has been introduced, the likelihood that it'll actually get through is low because... The original bill passed with a large majority in both their House and Senate, and also uh, their governor, Governor McRory, actually supports it. So it appears more likely that if the law goes down, it will be because of a lawsuit. Groups like the American Civil Liberties Union and Lambda Legal are challenging it in federal court, arguing that it is unconstitutional because it violates the Equal Protection and Due Process Clauses of the 14th Amendment. Critics of the law are still pressuring McRory and the legislature To reverse course, on Monday, a coalition of civil rights, faith, and business leaders delivered more than 150,000 signatures to the governor's office, urging a repeal of the law. Thousands of people are expected to rally outside the legislature. So even though it's the case that this will most likely not be repealed right away and that it'll just most likely be overturned, I still like the fact that these homophobic states, they can't just pass a law now and get away with it. There's substantial backlash, there's protests, there's petitions, there's people rallying around LGBT people now. And so, if you're a state who plans on passing these homophobic laws, you got this to look forward to. So, even though the law itself sets a bad precedent, well, the actual consequences that came to fruition actually are a good sign to me. It's an indication that we really are moving forward as a country. When you have everyone, the media, big business, and whatnot, even though I rail against big business oftentimes, if they're coming, together for this one issue. This is a win. This is a win for humanity. This is a win for society. So, I don't know that this law will be repealed right away. The fact that it was even codified to begin with, it's honestly disgusting. But the thing to keep in mind is that we really are making progress. 10 years ago, you could pass an LGBT law that discriminates against people left and right. I mean, you could ban uh, LGBT anti-discrimination clauses from even coming into law. So if a local municipality said, look, we want to codify this law that stops discrimination against gay people, well, that's that would be restricted and there'd be no repercussions for it. But now, in 2016, we've come a long way. You can no longer pass these brazenly homophobic and transphobic bills that violate equal protection under the law because it obviously does. If you can't see that, then you're dim-witted. But you can't pass these bills with no consequences anymore, and that, honestly, it's heartwarming. So I'm glad that people are coming around, and when you take into account the fact that 63% of young Republicans are in support of gay rights now, we're headed in the right direction. So even though the bill itself is a sign of regression, we have to look at the outcome, the consequences, the waves of consequences that ensued after its passage, and look at it as a, as a good time. Because this is something that, honestly... I'm, I'm really happy about. So kudos to everyone who's railing against it. Shout out to everyone who's protesting this, who's signing petitions, who's actually speaking out against this injustice because we can't have this in a democracy. You shouldn't discriminate against someone because of their immutable characteristic. It's not right, it's unethical, and it's undemocratic. Any justice who doesn't see this as an outright violation of the due process and equal protection clause of the 14th Amendment, well, they should probably be disbarred and not be a judge anymore. But I think it's going to happen. I have faith that this will be struck down because you can't get any more (laughs) brazen about your hatred for gay people than this. So it's not going to last. And any state who tries this, it's not going to last for them either. So I got a message from one of my viewers named Taylor Walker from California, and she explained to me why she is still Sanders. And I thought she made some phenomenal points. So I really wanted to play her message. So here that is.
5: Hey Mike, not going to lie, but after Bernie's loss tonight in New York, I felt really disheartened. He needed to be within 4-7% to 7% of Hillary in order to come out of it strong, and the polls had him right there, the exit polls. But as those precinct reports rolled in, my gut was wrenching. So I've thought about this loss a lot, and this might be my bias talking, but I'm going to let it run its mouth anyway. Everything was working against Bernie from the start. New York is one of her, what, three home states. He started 50 points down, and it was a super close primary. And I think reports are saying now that 120,000 Democratic voters in Brooklyn alone were struck from the records. But yet, despite all of that, he still came away with 42% of the delegates. In the grand scheme of things, he fell behind by about 31 delegates. It's a big loss, and it absolutely made his path to victory much narrower, but it's not gone completely. Hillary and the mainstream media will be calling for him to drop out harder than ever now. The amount of shit that us Bernie supporters will get for not supporting the winning candidate is going to be absolutely insane going forward. But I am in California. I've not had a chance to let my voice be heard yet. And I've invested so much into this campaign that giving up on Bernie and his message now would feel like I was giving up on myself bernie's not going to give up on me in fact in the face of so much opposition over everything he stood for for the last 35 years he's not giving up on what's right so i won't either and i am still for sanders
1: yeah so i agree with you 100 percent everything that she predicted about the media basically pressuring us to support hillary it's all come to fruition and the thing that makes me mad i'm glad she brought this up is how those of us voting in california in oregon we haven't had our chance to have a say in the election, yet it's already wrapped up for us, apparently? No, I don't think so. I'm still going to cast my vote for Bernie Sanders. My, I don't vote until May, and uh, the end of May, mind you, and Californians don't vote until June. So if you think that we're all just going to give up and not vote for Bernie Sanders, then, you know, you're crazy. It's not fair. It really isn't fair. And This is why Bernie Sanders has committed to remain in the race until Philadelphia, because he thinks it's only fair if all voters get to cast their vote and make their decision and have some say in the Democratic primary. That's why you remain in it until the convention. Now, here's the thing that really does bug me. When you really think about what could have been, it's really depressing because if we had an open primary in New York, it would have been a completely different story because the amount of independent voters exceeded the amount of votes Hillary Clinton beat Bernie Sanders by. So we could see entirely different results in the opposite way if we add open primaries. Now, I am 100% for open primaries across the board. Now, I'm always criticized when I say I don't like closed primaries by Hillary Clinton supporters because they'll say, well, look, well, you condemn closed primaries, but you won't uh, say that you're against caucuses because they help Bernie Sanders, right? Wrong. I am 100% against caucuses. I think they're undemocratic. I think that the secrecy of the ballot is important. You shouldn't have to go before a crowd and explain why you support one candidate or the other, like, that could lead to intimidation. It's just undemocratic. I don't like caucuses, and I am in favor of repealing those, getting rid of all caucuses. I'm in favor of getting rid of superdelegates altogether. It doesn't matter if they help or hurt Bernie Sanders. I want superdelegates gone. They're undemocratic. What I'm in favor of is strengthening democracy, and I'm consistent on this issue. So it's not the case that I'm against closed primaries because they hurt Bernie Sanders uh, and help Hillary Clinton, I'm against them because they're wrong. I want to strengthen and enrich our democracy. It's already bad enough that uh, all this money and special interests that are poured into elections, they diminish our level of representation. We don't have a say. So if you read the study by Dr. Gillens and Page from Princeton University, they found that businesses and special interests, they have all this say when it comes to influence in politicians, but when you control for just regular citizens and their policy preferences, we have zero impact, a non-statistically significant impact on their decisions when they make uh, legislation. And that's not fair. So I am in favor of strengthening democracy across the board. And if we actually had closed primaries, if we banned caucuses, if we didn't have superdelegates, we'd see see a completely different election. I honestly think we would, and we'd see many different types of elections. Now, one thing I can say is that I like the fact that it's proportional. That's the way it should be. I'm in favor of having electoral reform and getting a proportionally representative system. I don't like winner-take-all systems. I don't like district magnitudes where you get to only elect one representative. Uh, It's just unfair. So I'm in favor of democracy... Across the board. So anything that's undemocratic, you can expect me to be against it. I'm with you on the caucuses, Hillary supporters. We got to get rid of those. But can you actually say that you're with us on superdelegates too? Can you say that you're with us on closed primaries? See, this is why it's particularly egregious to have closed primaries. Independent voters make up the largest share of voters in the country now. Over 40% of individuals are independent. So why is it that only a select few people? get to participate in this process. Now, the counter-argument is that uh, the Democratic and Republican Party, these are private organizations. They don't have to be representative or democratic, but the thing about that that's problematic and that argument is just troubling for anyone to make is that we live in a two-party system. It's Duverger's Law. Look it up. I say it all the time. We basically can't have three parties be successful. It's very rare in our type of electoral system to see more than two parties. So if we only have two parties, you're damn right they better be democratic because they facilitate representation for 100% of the party effectively. So if you think that just because these are private, closed organizations, they can be undemocratic, absolutely not. I am in favor of open primaries for all candidates. I think that everyone should have a say in who becomes the nominee of the party. I don't believe in contested conventions unless it's the case that something bad happens. Like, for example, the only way I would actually support a contested convention uh, if Bernie Sanders lost, is if Hillary Clinton was going to be indicted. That's that's a different story. Or if uh, someone fell ill and they couldn't actually um, finish out the primary process or uh, compete in the general. That's one reason why I would support a contested primary, but superdelegates, uh, they've got to go away. But in the end, I completely agree with what Taylor said. I'm still Sanders through and through, and I really hope that all of Bernie's supporters are too because it's not over yet. He's not out of the race, and we can still try to influence this election and get as many delegates as possible to bolster our message and prove that we are a force to be reckoned with. So I have got a treat for you guys today. I am on the line with Dr. Jill Stein. She is a presidential candidate for the Green Party, and she is here to talk about her presidential campaign. So Dr. Stein, thank you so much for being on The Humanist Report. Welcome.
6: It's my pleasure, thank you so much, Michael.
1: So can you tell my viewers about yourself and some of the progressive policy positions that you hold?
6: Sure, so basically I'm a medical doctor um, and for decades I practiced clinical medicine, taking care of everyday people with, you know, the usual kinds of uh, uh, challenges, aches and pains, ailments that we have. Uh, But I have moved from practicing clinical medicine to now practicing what I call political medicine, because politics is really the mother of all illnesses, you could say, and we've got to fix our sick political system so we can start taking care of all the other illnesses and problems that are either killing us or threatening to do so, everything from pollution to poverty to a sick food system to um, climate change and war. Uh, You could say that I'm now running for president to help heal our ailing nation because we're in pretty serious uh, Condition right now. So as far as my policies um, You know, I I came into this really as a from from the world of medicine. I got uh, Involved in helping communities fight against some of the um, causes of problems that they were having so air pollution, coal plants, uh, incinerators that pollute our fish supply, um, our water, et cetera, um, working on community-based solutions to health problems that we don't need to have. And in a nutshell, what I found was that we could come up with great solutions, but couldn't get them past our, uh, what shall we say, our political institutions that are really bought and paid for by lobbyists and coal companies and predatory banks, and, you know, and, and fossil fuel um, giants uh, and war profiteers and all that, that, you know, that's kind of who's calling the shots. So that was my political education that began, you know, maybe 20 years ago or so. I came to this late in life, but I'm glad I got here. Um, and uh, over the years, my, uh, my positions have evolved to a very progressive point, uh, as I've become a more informed um, and uh, enlightened person. You know, I was a science walk for most of my life and kind of got dragged kicking and screaming into the political process because I found that everything we were doing as advocates for health, for uh, clean air, for jobs, um, we were just going backwards. So I got recruited, basically, uh, I should say tricked, into running for office, uh, running against Mitt Romney for governor in Massachusetts by the Green Party that came to me in 2002 to say, you know, uh, we like these fights for communities, for clean air, for jobs, for racial justice, uh, to stop environmental racism and so on. So the Green Party came to me, and I thought, wow, I didn't know there was a party like this that shared those values. I had kept really uh, an arm's length between myself and the corporate political parties because I did not trust them, found them very corrupt, and so on. So that's how I got into this. And um, so my positions at this point, um, you know, we... You know, we are, shall I say, we are in a state of uh, emergency, I think, economic, racial, uh, climate, uh, and democracy on every count. So we need big solutions, uh, not solutions around the margins. We need truly transformative change. And fortunately, we're at a moment, a historic moment, I think, where people are standing up like we haven't seen for generations, and really leading the charge in uh, fossil fuel blockades, in living wage campaigns, in the fight to make Black Lives Matter, uh, and, um, you know, to end these wars for oil, uh, and to cancel student debt. You know, all these are really critical struggles, and uh, it's everyday people in the social movements that are leading the way. So we need Uh, solutions politically that are as big as what the social movements are calling for. Uh, So these are really transformative solutions, and I might add that, in my view, we're not going to see them coming from the corporate political parties who are funded by the predatory banks and the fossil fuel giants and the war profiteers, because at the end of the day, that's where the big establishment parties get their money from. So at the end of the day, that's who calls the shots in the inner circle and in the political establishment. So, um, in my view, that's why the solutions have to come from outside of the corporate parties and why independent uh, third-party politics, non-corporate politics, and I should add the Green Party is the only national political party that uh, is not poisoned by corporate money. So we have the um, ability to actually stand up for the... Uh, the deep and broad solutions, the transformative solutions that we need now. So let me say, um, first of all, where we begin in talking about these solutions, I always talk about student debt first uh, because this is a transformative issue. It's also a gateway issue from which everything else flows. There are 43 million people, young people and not so young people, who are locked into student debt. It turns out $43 million is a winning plurality of the vote in a three-way presidential race. So, he, so you know what that means. Uh, and I said, yeah, there's only one candidate who will be on the ballot, and that will be the Green Party candidate, which I'm likely to be, uh, as the leading contender in our nomination process. Uh, so I will be the only candidate on the ballot who will cancel student debt. We did it for the bankers who crashed the economy, if we could bail out the crooks on Wall Street, it's about time to bail out their victims. Um, and this is something we can do. You know, we did these quantitative easings for the bankers. We can do a quantitative easing for the people holding student debt. Uh, and $43 million coming out to vote for only one candidate um, is a winning coalition. So if that word gets out, and no one is better positioned to get the word out than millennials in debt who know how to self-organize uh, on social media. By getting the word out, we can bring out enough people to actually take over the election and win the day, not just to end uh, student debt but to make public higher education free to, um, you know, and to go on from there. Healthcare is a human right to take back our public school system, to end the privatization and the high-stakes testing and the teacher bashing that goes along with it, and to actually teach to the whole student for lifetime learning, not do a high-stakes test. Um, And importantly, we can create um, a joint solution to the two biggest crises of our era, the crisis of our failing economy and the crisis of our collapsing climate. Um, We're calling for Excuse me, a green New Deal, like the New Deal that got us out of the Great Depression, but in this case, a green one so that it will fix the climate crisis as well as the economic crisis. It creates 20 million living wage, full time jobs that will green our energy, our food, and our transportation and fix. Uh, our infrastructure, including restoring our ecosystems, which are a pretty critical part of that infrastructure, altogether, you add that up, it will revive the economy, turn the tide on climate change, and make the freedom wars for oil obsolete, which is how it can pay for itself, because we save so much in the military that we can massively scale back when you don't have to be stealing oil from around the world and protecting routes of transportation. Um, That creates enough money to pay for this, as well as the health savings, from preventing the uh, diseases linked to fossil fuel pollution. So this is basically a self-paying miracle, uh, and uh, this is what we can stand up and do in the time frame that we need to do it in. So this isn't like by 2080 or something like that. You know, the news just came out this week. Um, another study that basically uh, reinforces Jim Hansen's study of a year ago that um, that we are looking at not a couple feet of sea level rise at the end of the century, but probably more like 10, 20, or 30 feet as soon as 2050. So this is an emergency, uh, and we need to jump on it now and beginning, begin a wartime level mobilization uh, to achieve 100 percent. Clean renewable energy by 2030, wind, water, and sun, no nuclear, no fossil fuels by 2030. And that means an immediate ban on all fossil fuel uh, infrastructure and new exploration. So we go into the phase-out immediately as we uh, go full force uh, creating the clean energy system. Briefly, I'll just mention a couple other things. We call for a welcoming path to citizenship. For the immigrants who've always been at the heart and soul, and the um, the creativity, the diversity, uh, the energy of our communities, our economy, and our culture, uh, we call for the path to citizenship a welcoming path. And doing, you know, if we think we got an immigration crisis, well, guess what? The most powerful thing we can do is stop causing it in the first place by repealing. Uh, predatory and destabilizing policies like NAFTA, which has produced millions of economic refugees, the war on drugs, killing hundreds of thousands of people in Mexico alone, uh, and the CIA coups, uh, military invasions, and U.S.-trained death squads, which are creating the violence and chaos from which uh, people are fleeing as refugees. And last quick mention, we can end the racist violence in our policing, courts, and prisons, end the racist war on drugs, and treat substance abuse uh, as a health issue and not as a criminal problem. And finally, uh, we can create a foreign policy based on international law and human rights, not on total economic and military domination, because how exactly is that working out for us? Well, not so good. $6 trillion since 9-11, that's $75,000 for every American household Spent on these catastrophic wars for oil, the war on terror that only creates more terror. Um, You know, and uh, I should mention millions of people killed in Iraq alone and tens of thousands of U.S. soldiers killed and maimed to produce what? Failed states, uh, worse terrorist threats, and mass refugee migration. So we need to go back to the drawing board and create a foreign policy based on international law and human rights and do the right thing and stop funding uh, countries who are systematically violating human rights and stop selling weapons to them as well. That includes Saudi Arabia, that includes Israel, that includes Egypt uh, and others. So we single-handedly can lead a peace offensive in the Middle East, um, lead the way on a weapons embargo, since we're supplying the majority of weapons to all sides, uh, and put a halt on, on uh, actually I should say a freeze on the uh, bank accounts of countries, our allies, just like us, who are funding um, terrorism. Uh, You know, the good guy terrorists one day become the bad guy terrorists the other day. So um, with one hand we are uh, fighting terrorism, and with the other hand we and our allies are funding, arming, and training terrorism. So we can stop this, stop the wars for oil, and stop ISIS in its tracks by doing the right thing. Those all together I think pretty completely um, describe our major policies.
1: That's great. And see, what I love about uh, people like you, who are true progressives, and people like Bernie Sanders, is that you say things that are completely rational. But to the establishment, it you know you can't say that. It's completely. <laughs> off the spectrum, but to actually say same things is a reason why people like you and Bernie Sanders are gaining so much traction among millennials. So you stated that you'd be willingly open to collaborate with Bernie Sanders, so I wanted to know what that would look like. Would that be a Sanders-Stein ticket? Uh, has he answered your response? Can you give us some details on that? So,
6: uh, we are open, you know, to all possibilities, and there will obviously be some, you know, administrative constraints on whatever plan we might Hatch, um, and you know the main problem, the weak link in this chain, is where does Bernie stand? And Bernie has not responded. I'm not holding my breath. I must tell you because the Green Party has been inviting uh, Bernie to have a conversation about independent progressive politics for um, since 2011, wow. since before its last race, and. That's included, you know, snail mail and phone calls and email. So, you know, it's pretty clear Bernie has not been interested. And, and while he's been, you know, nominally an independent, since he's been in Washington, he's pretty much been working with Democrats, caucusing with Democrats, and not looking favorably on stepping outside of the Democratic Party. And that's where we part ways. You know, we agree on a lot of our agendas, especially our domestic agenda. We're a little bit on foreign policy, but he's evolving there, so he could wind up in the same place, especially if he wasn't constrained by the Democratic Party and its ties to the war profiteers. Uh, I think he would come around and do the right thing. But the question is, you know, is he willing to go beyond those circles? And he has not been willing, you know, at this point at any rate, to talk to me or others in um, independent political um, circle. So, you know, fingers crossed, maybe this is a big, uh, you know, um, uh, a a wake-up moment uh, for him, given how incredibly, um, you know, uh, unethical and uh, unacceptable the behavior of the Democratic Party has been towards his campaign and its efforts to sabotage him. And unfortunately, this didn't start with Bernie, you know, the Democrats have a long history of allowing progressive candidates to be heard for a while and then uh, basically sidelining them in all kinds of uh, vicious and unsavory ways. So Dennis Kucinich, for example, had a very principled campaign, but the Democrats redistricted him and got him out of the way in that way. You may remember Howard Dean who uh, at the time was a progressive, I'm not <laughs> sure he is back now, <laughs> but at the time he was a progressive and he was a peace candidate, and the Democrats went after him with a public relations smear campaign, the so-called Dean's Scream, which took just a moment of enthusiasm and made him look like a madman and splattered it all over the airwaves and brought him down in the polls and basically knocked him out, same thing with Jesse Jackson. Um, You know, who was made out to be an anti-Semite after he, on the strength of the civil rights movement, he was going full bore and had won about 12 major midwestern primaries, and they sabotaged him. So, you know, this isn't an accident. The Democrats created superdelegates. After a peace candidate was elected in 1972, after George McGovern got elected, uh, they resolved that they would change the rules so that you could never have a grassroots candidate elected again. And they did that. That's why they created the superdelegates and the Super Tuesdays to basically knock out uh, grassroots candidates. And that's how they've been knocking out Bernie. If we had a truly open system... That wouldn't be happening. But they've been able to use the power of the machine in the way that, you know, the Super Tuesdays are, you know, uh, they just pile on the, um, you know, the the primaries so that even while Bernie's done an awesome job of fundraising through grassroots, they've still been able to exert the power of the machine um, just, you know, using the old boy and old girl, I guess, networks, um to rally support for hillary beyond you know beyond anything bernie could do with his uh fundraising you know and and if we had primaries one at a time that wouldn't be the case you could really have a campaign go in and meet the people and um you know and really make the case but that doesn't happen in the current system so we'll see if this is a wake-up time for bernie but Uh, you know, from the way it's looking, I'm not so optimistic, because it looks like a major effort is being made to kind of corral people back into the Democratic Party. And I think it's a really important time for people who are not, you know, good little boys and girls, and who are not into the ethic of just taking the marching orders from the uh, Democratic machine to really think twice before just kind of abandoning all the work that um you've done inside this you know revolutionary campaign it may turn out that the revolutionary campaign you know cannot you know live inside of a counter-revolutionary party which the democrats have been for a long 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 time um and really important for people i think to think outside the box and keep the heat on and see if we can get bernie to move outside the box, but if we can't, you know, I think we got to keep moving forward, you know, because (laughs) the Democratic Party, you know, is not going to do it for us, and I think millennials know more than anybody. They are looking down the barrel of a gun, whether it's the climate, whether it's student debt, whether it is the jobs that aren't there in the economy, which is about to crash again, whether it's the expanding wars, you know, I think millennials are seeing the world as it is. Without the filter, you know, of being 40, 50, 60 years old, you tend to see things with a little bit of the filter of what it looked like yesterday. And the world doesn't look like yesterday today. It's a very different place, and it really demands transformative and radical action and transformative change. And I think millennials have always been the leaders of that change. It doesn't happen without you know, youth leadership. That's right. why I think it's important to cancel debt, because then we actually can bring bring the vanguard back in, liberate people, you know, who are missing in action right now because people are very busy working a job and going to school, or they graduated and now they're working two and three part-time jobs to try to make ends meet. Uh, we need to liberate the younger generation to follow their dreams and to guide us forward with those dreams and with those visions. Um You know, and together, I think what's so exciting is that we actually have the power to make that happen. 43 43 million millennials, if the word gets out, there's no stopping us. Right. We We have the power to do this. You know, if we had a campaign like friends don't let friends stay home in debt, come out to vote, bring your friends and your family, and we could have the voter revolt of all history. You know, never before will there have been a voter revolt like what millennials can make happen in this election by just getting the word out.
1: Right. No, that that's such a great point. And I think that if any time, I think this election cycle is when, you know, something like that is bound to happen. Now, one thing that I kind of wanted to ask you about is a lot of independent candidates and third parties, they always get a bad rap because they always are accused of being spoilers to the Democratic Party. And effectively, they get blamed for Republicans getting in office. I mean, case in point, Ralph Nader in 2000. So what do you say to the critics who say these types of things?
6: Great. Uh, So, you know, that's a really important point. And um, there are a couple things to say. First, this, um, you know, this complaint is usually coming from... Uh, the Democrats, and it's a very self-serving complaint because what it does is basically tell everybody else to be quiet, you know, to go home and and you know shut up. So there's no better way to protect the status quo from a political opposition, and this is an effort to silence political opposition. So it's really important to see this as the propaganda that it is. But let me say beyond that, if you look at what actually happened in Florida, what happened in Florida was that the Supreme Court stopped the vote count, right. and, and Gore would just roll over. But uh, several independent investigative efforts showed that had that vote count been allowed to proceed, it wasn't true. It wasn't true that um, you know Gore would have won Florida. So Nader, in fact, or nobody else, in fact, created that lose, that loss. That loss was created by the Supreme Court and the Democrats surrender to that. But let me say beyond that, that the votes that uh, Nader got were a tiny fraction of the votes that crossed over from Democrats, not to Greens, but from Democrats to Republicans. And that, in turn, was a tiny fraction of the Democrats who just didn't come out, the registered Democrats who refused to come out and vote at all because they were not inspired to do so by Al Gore's campaign. So that's where, you know, that's where the Democratic Party bled out. They weren't in the small vote counts that, May, that Ralph Nader got. If you were going to tell Ralph Nader to go home and be quiet, then you had to tell that to all the other small parties, by the way, whose votes also could have made that difference of 500-some votes uh, that were short when the Supreme Court stopped the count. You know, you would have had to stop all the socialist parties. You to stop the Libertarian Party. You could blame this on any independent voice. Why blame it on the Greens? Because the Greens are the threat to the Democrats, because we have a compelling uh, cake to make. And so, they, you know, so the machine works overtime to try to silence the Greens, because they're very afraid of us. <laughs> but what they could do, if they were really concerned about the so-called spoiler problem, they could fix that in the blink of an eye, because there's a voting reform called ranked-choice voting, which lets you rank your choices. So you could vote number one as Nader or, you know, or Cynthia McKinney or myself. You know, we could be your number one. And your number two could have been Al Gore or Barack Obama or whoever. That could have been your number two. And what happens in ranked choice voting is that if your number one is eliminated because they were an underdog and they didn't do well, your vote is automatically reassigned to your number two. So there's never any risk of your vote inadvertently helping someone you don't want to help. That is a system that's used in many cities around the country, in San Francisco, Oakland, in the Twin Cities, um, a variety of other places. I believe
1: Australia and as well.
6: And that's right. And many countries around the world, New Zealand, I believe it's used for some, uh, some national elections in Ireland too. So there are many countries that use this. Uh, Maine, the state of Maine, in fact, is running it as a referendum campaign to use statewide. They are, I believe they have it in force in Portland, Maine now, and uh, they're now looking at it uh, at the state level as sort of part of the stepping stone to going national. But there's no reason why states can't implement it right now. They can pass it in their legislatures, they don't need a constitutional amendment. Uh, they can go to fairvote.org which is the organization that's promoting it and um this can be done right now so there's no reason to silence people we have a democracy which is in trouble right now and silencing voices doesn't make democracy stronger and it's important to point out that this politics of fear that tells you you have to vote your fears and not your beliefs that politics of fear where did it get us you know it's got a track record it actually brought everything we were afraid of all the reasons you were told you had to vote for the letter evil because you didn't want the massive bailouts for wall street or the offshoring of our jobs, or the meltdown of the climate or the massive expanding wars or the uh skyrocketing student debt or the you know the massive expanse of the prison industrial complex What is it we've got? That's exactly what we've gotten by voting for the lesser evil. And in fact, most of that we got under a Democratic White House with two Democratic Houses of Congress, which makes the point, you know, (laughs) the the fear has delivered everything we're afraid of. Why is that? It's because silence is not a strategy. If we be quiet, it just leaves the corporate predators to do what they want. And the lesser evil, at the end of the day, It doesn't stop the greater evil. It actually makes the greater evil inevitable, Because what happens after you get a lesser evil in office, whether you consider that Obama or whether you consider it a whole variety of lesser evil Democrats uh, at the state level, what happens is that those offices then flip from being blue to going red because the base doesn't come out to vote for it. The base, you know, in both midterm elections, in uh, 2010 and in 2014, they were massive losses for the Democrats because their base wouldn't come out—immigrants, Latinos, um, uh, youth, uh, labor, etc.—would not come out to vote for Democratic candidates. So they massively lost across the board. So forget the lesser evil; it's time to fight for the greater good. That is the only way forward. Democracy needs a moral compass. Uh, you know, it doesn't exist to a vacuum. We have to be that moral compass. The clock is ticking. This is a Hail Mary moment. You know, our days are ticking uh, are, are off now one by one. Uh, there's, you know, there's real climate news out there, which is very sobering, uh, about the rising sea levels and when they're going to happen. we got to start action. Now, right. wartime mobilization. Forget this lesser evil nonsense. It's about the greater good. It's the greater good, not the lesser evil. We have not vote for it. It's not <laughs> vote for it, stand up for it, remembering that we have the power. They tell us we're powerless. That's why we should be quiet. Remember, we've got 43 million millennials. That is the power to win this race and the future we deserve.
1: So you kind of alluded to this uh, by talking about the alternate vote system, but would you be in favor of electoral reform, such as proportional representation, uh, and if so, do you think this would actually help out the Greens?
6: Of course, you know I think it will help our democracy. <laughs> right. When you only have two parties, when you only have two parties, it's, you know it's a, um, you know uh, it's very easy for big money to buy them out. You know when they're just two sitting there like sitting ducks. You know the big money will go after them. You know I, I think not only do we need multipartisan partisan democracy, which is what you get with proportional representation, which means for people who don't, you know, who aren't familiar with it. It means if you, if your party or your, uh, in your race, you get 10% of the vote, you know, then you get 10% of the representative in the legislature or in, in Congress. It just means that all voices will be heard. You don't have to be the dominant you know, gorilla in the room in order to be heard. We need more voices and more choices. It's very good for democracy because of the diversity of voices, because everybody gets represented, and it promotes collaboration. Because once you have multi-partisan democracy, you have to have coalitions, people working in coalitions, so it promotes a much more collaborative um, political system. The other thing we have to do for electoral reform is get big money out of politics, and that means ending you know private financing of campaigns. Uh, not only getting big money out but as far as I'm concerned getting all private money out you shouldn't be able to sell fun you know if you're putting corporate money into this um, you know somebody else's corporate money is coming into your campaign or you've made billions through your own corporate enterprises that doesn't represent most people and I think everybody should have to play on a level playing field here and we need free media, by the way. We need to restore the public airways for public use. Because the minute you do that, the cost of campaigns goes way down. And then we as the public can afford to fund them the minute you have open access to ballot qualified candidates on the open media. Um, and then the final component here, you know, so there's voting reforms you mentioned, like uh, proportional representation and ranked choice voting. There's uh, getting the money out. There's opening up the media. And finally, uh, ballot access because right now there are rules created in order to keep uh, opposition voices off the ballot and out of the discussion. So those rules need to be reasonable rules. You shouldn't have to spend millions of dollars. In other words, be a corporate, um, you know, on the corporate payroll in order to even get on the ballot. We need to have open ballot access with reasonable rules. Uh, Right now there are 50 rules in 50 different states that keep you jumping through all kinds of hoops just to get on the ballot if you are not part of the uh, status quo political system. So all those changes, they are not rocket science. And simply making any one of those changes um, helps build momentum for making all the other changes. And the last thing I should mention there is opening up the debates. That's, uh, again, something that we should do right now. Is open up the debate to ballot-qualified candidates who would be on the ballot uh, for the majority of voters. If that reasonable rule is used, then there would be between four and six candidates in a debate uh, over the past, you know, many decades uh, for presidential debates. So it's not too many. Uh, it would create greater diversity and much more interest than what we have right now with the Tweedledee, Tweedledum debate <laughs> that uh, we tend to have. They may differ on social policy this time around, uh, but who knows, maybe not. Uh, Trump be more, <laughs> more progressive on social policy in some areas, and in fact on, on war policy may be less, less of a hawk than, than Hillary Clinton. So, you know, all the old rules are falling by the wayside one by one It's time for us to get out of the box before it collapses in on us, you know, and force our way forward. And that may include some direct actions and civil disobedience to try to open up the presidential debate.
1: Great. So I wanted to give you the chance to make the pitch to my viewers as to why they should vote for you. And before I get to that, I kind of want to preface your answer by talking about the Bernie or bust movement, because you have that crowd split by about 50-50. So about uh, 50% are saying that they'll write in Bernie Sanders, and the other 50% are saying that they'll vote for you. So what is your pitch to the people who are saying that they want to write in Bernie Sanders?
6: Sure. So, you know, the first reason right off is a very practical one. A write-in is like not voting. Unfortunately, that's how the rules work.
1: <laughs> right.
6: Well, you know, if you haven't, you know, jumped through the hoops to get on the ballot and you don't have a, you know, uh, if you're not legitimately ballot qualified, you won't get counted and you won't get reported. So you might as well not go to the poll. And in my view, that's like lying down on the railroad tracks and saying, you know, if you're in corporate America, you know. Um, take the world over the cliff where you're taking it. And I think that's just not okay. Um, So I would really appeal to people, you know, not to let them uh, marginalize you, not to let them sideline you, not to let them tell you you are powerless, because you are powerful. In the words of Alice Walker, the wonderful poet and novelist, the biggest way people give up power is by not knowing we have it to start with. We have it. It's about standing up and using it. And if the Democratic Party cannot see its way to do justice to Bernie Sanders and the campaign that you have created, don't let them silence you. Keep that campaign going. Let it be proof that the Democratic Party is not worthy of your campaign and that we need a better place uh, in which this revolutionary campaign can take root and grow. That is the problem inside the Democratic Party. As worthy as uh, Bernie's campaign is, um, the Democratic Party has a track record for dismantling those campaigns. And while it has lifted up uh, brilliant and um, powerful voices like Bernie's, like Dennis Kucinich, like Jesse Jackson, what the party has done over the years is do this kind of fake left. The party pretends it's tolerant of the left, but what has it actually done? It keeps marching to the right, becoming more corporatist, more militarist, more imperialist. And we're at the point where our survival is not to be taken for granted. Between the next crash of the economy and uh, pretty uniformly across the board, with a few exceptions, but most responsible uh, observers of Wall Street and the economy are clear that we are in more jeopardy than we've ever been. The banks are bigger than ever, more leveraged than ever, more, more prone to fail. And that's going that burden is going to fall on us again. You know, it was, what, like 13 trillion, something like that, you know, many trillions in household wealth that went up in smoke. And it's gonna happen again. If we don't stand up and fight it, you know, our jobs that are going to go overseas, the climate that is in all-out meltdown now, you know, the clock is ticking here. We've just heard it now from NOAA, the uh, National uh, Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration that just echoed Jim Hansen and said, yes, it's likely to be uh, nine feet sea level rise by 2050. That means we've got to start now. You know, We can't wait even four years on this. We need to start now. So, you know, and, and add to that, ending student debt. You can do that. You can end your debt. We've bailed out the bankers. We can bail out for a much smaller price tag everybody who holds student debt right now with a quantitative easing. And guess what? It doesn't even have to go to Congress. The president alone has the power to do this simply by appointing the chair of the Federal Reserve. That's how the banks got bailed out. So appointing Ellen Brown, author of, um, what is it called, World of Debt, a renowned uh, advocate for all kinds of great things. A lot of people know about her, and she is uh, ready to go as our chair of the Federal Reserve, and we can appoint her uh, upon becoming elected. We can then cancel student debt. and. It's mind-boggling we actually have the numbers that we can do this we have a game plan that will make it happen and it will create a far more productive economy it's the best stimulus package in the world so you know uh, there's nothing uh, you know not to love about this we can do this we can actually create an America and a world that works for all of us bailing out Millennials making higher education free Uh, creating health care as a human right through Medicare for all, creating a Green New Deal that will rescue the climate uh, while reviving the economy and making wars for oil obsolete and putting our foreign policy on the correct footing of um, international law and human rights. This is the world that we can actually create. We have the power to do it. Don't let them talk you into powerlessness or into hopelessness, because if you're hopeless, you're powerless. But the reality is we are powerful, so we have every reason to act on it, to stand up, to tell your friends. If every person listening tells 10 friends, to each tell 10 of their friends, and 10 of their friends, we will be very close to actually winning this election. And if we don't win it, that's okay, because we will have started a momentum that will then have a base from which it will build. And simply by bringing out millions of people to fight student debt, we will make that a reality. We will make canceling student debt a reality, whether we win or not simply by showing that there is a powerful and unstoppable demographic here that is demanding it. So this is a win-win no matter how you cut it. It is a win for standing up, rejecting the lesser evil, fighting for the greater good, and moving forward as far and as fast as we can to a healthy, just, and sustainable, and peaceful and democratic future that really is within our reach the minute we stand up with the courage of our convictions, and make it so. Together, we are unstoppable. I encourage people, go to jill2016.com, go to our, our Facebook and our Twitter pages, uh, which is Dr. Jill Stein and that DR, no period, Dr. Jill Stein, and join the team. Together, we will make it happen.
1: Well, great. Thank you. This has been absolutely uh, illuminating. I think that what you said will resonate with a lot of my viewers. So thank you so much for being on the program.
6: Thank you so much. It's been really great, Michael, talking to you. And all the best. You know, you really, you and and your generation, no pressure, but you really are the force that is going to transform our future. And I thank you for that. And it's an honor to be on your team.
1: So hopefully you guys found that enlightening. If you would like to support Joel Stein, you could visit the links in the description box. So thank you all so much for tuning in. Well, that's the episode. I want to thank all of my viewers and listeners on iTunes and SoundCloud for tuning in every single week so loyally. And I want to welcome all of my newest subscribers to the channel. If you share the videos that I post, if you tweet about uh, the Humanist Report, thank you so much because you guys are part of the progressive revolution. And, um... I'm just trying to facilitate that and get the message out there and do what's right for the country and actually help progressive Democrats get into office. But look, in the end, we're going to keep on going. I'm still Sanders all the way through and through. Uh, You can expect me to support him until the very end. And even when that's over, we're not going to stop fighting for progressive ideals. So even though we had a bad week, just know that as progressives, we've already won a lot because we've proven that we're not playing games. We are a force to be reckoned with. And if the Democratic Party tries to mess with us and compromise on their progressive ideals, well, then they don't get our votes. They got to deal with us now. So this form of accountability is really important in democracy. And I really feel as though... Uh, independent media sources like The Benjamin Dixon Show, Sane Progressive, Tim Black, The Young Turks, Kyle Kalinsky, David Pacman, all these people are really helping to facilitate that progressive message. So thank you to all of you who watch and tune in because without the audience, we'd be no one. We'd be nowhere. So uh, thank you guys all so much. I'll see you next week.